All right, so First and Second Thessalonians. We're going to take the fall really right up until Christmas in these two letters. We're going to do these two letters together, even though they are separate letters that Paul wrote. They wrote he wrote them to the same church, uh, the church in Thessalonica, which is still, actually, interestingly enough, a, a city that still exists um, in Greece. Um, it's obviously a much more modern city now than it was when Paul wrote these words. Um, but there is still a modern-day city of Thessaloniki, I think is how it's pronounced now, but it's Thessalonica in the, in the old Greek uh, version. And um, this is an amazing letter. These are actually two amazing letters, but Paul wrote these letters chiefly, primarily, in order to encourage this church. So uh, that's why we're calling it encourage one another, because actually Paul uses the phrase encourage or encourage one another, um, something along those lines in that realm, uh, more in these two letters than any other uh, letter that he writes to any other church. Uh, And I think there's a reason for that. Uh, As we look at the Thessalonians, and we understand a little bit of the background of what this church was dealing with, uh, it makes sense that Paul would want, want to come alongside them through his writing and encourage them. Um, you can read the story of how the church in Thessalonica was, was started in Acts chapter 17. We're not going to get through all of that today. I would really just encourage you to read, read it on your own. But Acts 16, just to give you the brief overview Paul and Silas, who were a missionary team, they uh, were called to Macedonia. And Macedonia is uh, where Thessalonica was. It was a region in the Greek and Roman world. And Thessalonica was the largest city in Macedonia. It was a city of about 100 to 200,000 by most estimates. Um, So it wasn't a massive city by our standards, right? When you think of Chicago, you know, multiple millions of people live in Chicago just alone, you know, Milwaukee is a million some people, right? We have some big cities in our world. Um, but in the, in the Greek and Roman world, a, a city of 100 to 200,000 was a huge city. And so Thessalonica was a big prominent city in Macedonia. But as Paul and Silas go to Macedonia, they, they first go to uh, Philippi. They experience a lot of persecution there. They're thrown in prison, but God uses that, gets them out of prison, saves the jailer, in fact, who is guarding them. And it's a really neat story through chapter 16. And then they run off from Philippi to Thessalonica. And as just the basic story is that they show up. Paul begins to preach in the synagogue there. He starts with the low-hanging fruit, right? That's, that's a good strategy when you're trying to reach people. Start with the, the common ground. And so Paul goes to the, the, the Jewish people first because they at least have some basis for understanding the Messiah in Jesus. Uh, but what we find is that the, the, the Jewish people primarily in Thessalonica really are hostile to Paul's message. They don't receive it in very large numbers. But the Gentiles do receive it in great numbers. Uh, we're told that a great many Gentiles became Christians in Thessalonica because of Paul's preaching. And so here's this church. It's a young church. It's a new church. It's blowing and growing up really fast. But, but what happens in the midst of that is incredible persecution. And there's a number of people in the city that start to try to riot. This happens a lot when Paul goes to cities. If you read the book of Acts, it's like he just starts riots everywhere he goes because people are freaking out about the message of the gospel. And so what happens is Paul and, and Silas are 
um, basically forced to leave the city in the middle of the night because otherwise they would have been killed, probably. And so they, they flee from the city. Um, most scholars think that Paul was only in Thessalonica for a matter of months, um, probably two or three at the most, a very short amount of time compared to the time he spent in like Ephesus, which was three years, or Corinth, which was at least two years, uh, perhaps longer. And so the Thessalonian church was very discouraged by these things. They were discouraged by the hostility that they experienced to the gospel. They were discouraged that Paul had to get out and leave way prematurely in their minds. They were discouraged that Jesus had not come back yet. And so a lot of the content of First Thessalonians and, and the second letter as well has to do with the return of Christ and what, what that means and what that looks like because they were very confused about these things. And so this was a church that was really beaten up and discouraged. And so Paul is writing to them to help them and to help them be encouraged. And so there's a lot of beauty here and there's a lot to model after Paul's example for us. So that's the overview of the book real briefly here, but let's get into the first chapter today. We're just going to look at chapter one and then uh, it's a pretty short chapter, just 10 verses. And we're going to see Paul's introduction to this letter because I think the introduction is uh, important. It sets the tone for the whole letter, right? If you were to write something like a letter. We don't write letters anymore so much, but okay. So let's say you're writing a text message. <sighs> Tough stuff to do, right? Text message or an email. You, you should, if you're a thoughtful person, think about how you're, how you're starting that out, right? If you just come in blasting away and just furious, well, we know how, how to respond to that email or whatever. But if we're trying to encourage someone, how we address that, how we speak to that is is uh, it's important. And so Paul's a very thoughtful person and he's going to uh, address them in a way that sets up the rest of this letter. And uh, what's amazing is as we read this letter, as we start it out, the overwhelming thing that Paul wants to convey to the Thessalonians right out of the gate is not his frustration with them. It's not the, his correction for their wrong theology. He'll get to those things at, in time but he doesn't start there. He starts with actual gratitude for them. That's an amazing thing. And so let's, let's take a look at it together. We'll start in verse one. And here, again, this is a letter. So the letters have a format and every New Testament letter starts very similarly because they're writing it in the style of letter that they would have written, right? So we would say, dear so-and-so or um, to whom it may concern, right? We always kind of address it that way. Then we have the body of the letter and then we sign off sincerely uh, our name. <clears throat> in the Greek world, they started letters by introducing the, the author of the letter and then addressing the recipients of the letter. So that's why it starts with these words, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Silvanus is uh, Silas, okay? And that's just the Latin version of his name. Um, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy are the three authors of this letter. Paul and Silas were the ones who went to Thessalonica to begin with. Now, uh, Timothy is a part of this because, as we'll see as we get through the letter, Timothy is actually sent to Thessalonica for a, a, a checkup with them. 
And so he's come back to Paul and he's given them an update on where the church is at. And so he's helping write this letter as well. To the church of, Thessalon- of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It's a pretty standard introduction as, as Paul uh, writes his letters. But what's the one telling thing about this is that Paul does not introduce himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He does in almost every other letter he writes. He doesn't use a title like Paul, an apostle of Christ. Uh, The reason for that is probably because the Thessalonians had no problem believing Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. They loved Paul. Not so much the Corinthians, right? Not so much uh, the Galatians, but the Thessalonians loved Paul and he had really no reason to defend his, his authority. They, they accepted it and they loved him and they wanted him to be a, a part of their church. Um, and he was swept away way too soon in their minds. So he's not having to address them as an apostle. He's just, he's Paul. And then there's Silas and Timothy. And so, so this is the introduction, or this is the greeting. Now we get to the introduction of the letter in verse two. Here's what it says. We give thanks to our God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we start this letter, the first thing he says is we, Paul, Silas, Timothy, these three guys writing this letter, we give thanks to God for all of you. There's, there's not a whole lot more encouraging than that, right? To, to have someone who you deeply love to, to express their gratitude for you and to say, I'm praying for you. And as we pray for you, we are thanking God for you. He, he's using this letter as a way to encourage these young Christians, this young church potentially a very large church. We, we just know it had a great number of Gentiles join this church. We don't know what a great number means exactly, but it's a large group, but it's a very young group of, of Christians. And 1 Thessalonians was probably Paul's first letter written to any church. It was very early in Paul's ministry that he wrote this letter. And what he starts with is that he's thankful for them. He's not thankful for merely what they do. He's thankful for them. That's a huge distinction, right? Because we can be thankful for the things that someone does for us or in our lives, or we can be grateful. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that, but there's something significantly more meaningful to have someone be thankful for you as a, as a person. And Paul and these other guys who are writing this letter are reminding these Christians, that they are thankful and are constantly bringing to the Lord their gratitude for them. And then in verse 3, he goes on to say that he is thankful, remembering the work of faith, the labor of love, and the steadfastness of hope that this, that this little church has in Jesus Christ. He, he is bringing out these three things, faith, love, and hope which are really the three Christian virtues, right? The three things 
and there's other things, right? There's the fruit of the Spirit and all those things that should be embodied as, as we grow in Christ. But faith, hope, and love are uh, often used by Paul to, to express the kind of the fullness of the Christian life. Charles Spurgeon refers to this uh, as the three divine sisters linking hands in the lives of the Thessalonians. So what Paul is giving thanks for is this, that the faith that they have in Jesus is actually working in their life. The love that they have because of Jesus is laboring among them. That the hope that they have in Christ is enduring. And that's, that's vital, right? That's, that's important to see these things, these attributes growing in us. That's what it means to be a Christian. So Paul is grateful for the Thessalonians because the work of the gospel is actually working. It has taken root in their lives that what Christ has done and accomplished for them, as he's going to unpack here, has really taken root in their lives. So as Paul continues here, let's look at verse four and five. He says, for we know brothers loved by God that he has chosen you because our gospel, the word gospel is a, from a Greek word that means good news. Our gospel came to you, not, in, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. And you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. So here, Paul continues to express even further why he's grateful for this church. The gratitude um, that he has for them is rooted in the salvation that God has brought to them. That's really fundamentally why he's thankful for them is because he sees the work of Jesus going through the preaching of the word, through the teaching of scripture, being received in their hearts and being then applied and worked out as they grow. He, he's, gra- he's showing gratitude because God has saved them. But notice how he expresses this salvation. Verse four, let's look at it again. We know brothers loved by God. That's who they are. They're loved by God. That's their identity. That's the the foundation of who they are. And if you're a Christian, if you've trusted Christ, that's your identity too. You, You may be a lot of things, but what you are primarily is loved by God. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. So that's an astounding thing too, right? Because so often we think of salvation as, well, we choose to love God. Well, yes, we do. But the question is, is chicken or the egg, right? It's like, who, which comes first in this? Does us choosing God come first or does God choosing us come first? And well, of course, The Bible teaches over and over again that it is God who first sets his love on us. Paul spends a great deal of time unpacking this in the first uh, chapter of Ephesians. John, uh, the apostle John, as he writes his letter, uh, deals with this as well. And he, he says it very clearly that we love because God loved us. We love because God loved us. He loved us first. Paul explains it in the, in the letter to the Ephesians as in love, he predestined us in a, to adoption as sons. 
That word predestined, I know it can be scary and whatever. We don't need to get too hung up on the theological arguments that exist there. All that's being conveyed is that God loves you. And because he loved you, he set his heart to save you. And he did that through Jesus. And of course, we then respond to that love in faith and trust and obedience and all those things. Of course we do. But it's because we've been loved by God that God has chosen us. And here's how Paul knows that they've been loved by God and chosen in him. Verse 5 tells us, because our gospel, our good news, the good news of Jesus that Paul preached and proclaimed to them, came to them not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So the word of God came to them It was the word of God, but it was the power of the Holy Spirit working through God's word that brought the conviction to their hearts so that they received it and believed it. All right, let's look at verse six through eight. Paul first expresses his gratitude for their acceptance of the gospel, their receiving of it, that God's love for them has called them into salvation And now he's going to start to talk about his gratitude for the growth he has seen in their lives, that the gospel is working out of them. So verse 6 through 8 says, "And, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia And in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Paul is expressing to them his gratitude for seeing not only the gospel be received, but the gospel seeds that were planted in their heart begin to grow. And he, ex- he expresses this in, in specifically that they were imitators of them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and of the Lord. So is, is it just enough that we imitate Jesus? Well, yes, that's obviously what we're called to, to do. But Paul frequently in his letters encourages the church to imitate him as he imitates Christ. Right? And so what that tells us is this, that yes, we, are, we're get, we have the Bible, we should be reading it, we should be applying these things to our lives, but it also means that we need other people to help us grow in Christ. We should have spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers, spiritual brothers and spiritual sisters, people who we can look at their lives and go, this, this is a model. It's not that they do it perfectly. It's not that Paul was a perfect man. He was a sinner like all of us, and he's the first to admit that. He says he's the chief of sinners, in fact, in one of his letters. He says he's the worst of all of us because he he knew deep down how how hard his heart could be. And and we all can acknowledge that, right? None of us feel up to the task of being a spiritual mentor, leader, or or, or being an example to others. But if you're growing in Christ... There, there can be and there should be others coming in your wake to say, I, I want to grow with you. 
and maybe they're a little further down, a little bit less down the road than you are, and they can come alongside of you and learn from you. And it's not that we're some weird guru Yoda type of person who should be sitting up there going, oh, I'm just, I've got it all figured out. That's not at all what Paul is getting at. But what he's saying is, is that he and these, these other guys, Silas and Timothy, who are much younger guys than Paul, um, they were also being lumped into this, that they were also being examples to this church. And the church saw their faith and, and began to imitate what they saw. That's a good thing. We need other people to help us grow in Christ. And so Paul is acknowledging that they've been doing that. They've been, they've been imitating the faith of those who have gone ahead of them. And he further says that they've received God's word in the midst of much affliction. So notice that at the end of verse 6, that you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. This is another uh, indicator that faith is genuine in your life, that when things are hard, when life is difficult, when you're in uh, a season of pain, that you actually find yourself more deeply drawn to Jesus than withdrawn from him. That's an indication that faith has taken root in your life. We, that we actually cling harder to Jesus actually in times of hardship than retreating from him. And I think in our, in our world, we, we, you know, we say things are persecution where there really isn't persecution and we need to be careful about that because there is actual genuine persecution in the world. And if everything's persecution, like somebody on Twitter said something mean about you, that's not persecution, okay? Let's just be honest, it's not. Um, but it can be hurtful, sure. Uh, cling to Jesus, preach the gospel to your heart in those things, fine. But, but what the Thessalonians were actually experiencing was uh, like the potential of cities being burned down because of their faith in Jesus. Like that riots and people being killed and arrested. And, and that's the kind of affliction that Paul experienced there. And that's why he and Silas ran, ran away from it uh, to go on to the next place. And the Thessalonian church were still there. They stayed where they were and, and they continued to press into Jesus in affliction. That's where the rubber meets the road and Paul's commending them for it. All right. Verse 9 through 10, the last couple verses here. Paul says, For they themselves report concerning us. They themselves refers to these people, other people, other churches in Macedonia and Achaia that he just mentioned. These other churches that are seeing the Thessalonians and are going, Whoa, this church is really doing great. We want to be like them. So they, he says, report to Paul concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So Paul is expressing how their salvation has taken root in their lives and has grown through, uh, in, in their lives into uh, receiving God through affliction and being uh, loving people and having hope and all those things. But here he just basically lays out how the, the, the true issue of salvation is evident in their lives, that they have turned 
to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So all these other gods and goddesses that the Romans had had in their pantheon and the Greeks and all those things, right? We know all those, those variety of gods, right? The Thessalonians said, you know what? That's all nonsense. There is one true God who has shown up in Jesus Christ and we believe in him. And you and I may not live in a culture where there's all kinds of gods that, that are visible, right? But we still live in a world with all kinds of gods, all kinds of idols. The idols of the human heart, the idols of our culture, the idols that we've propped up to find our significance and our security. And that's really what an idol is. It's, it's whatever we put our trust in for significance and security. That could be your money. It could be the comforts of, uh, of your life. It could be the people around you. And none of these things are inherently bad. It's not, that's not the issue. What becomes bad is when those things that God gives us as a gift become treated like they're the giver. Right? We have to distinguish the giver from the gifts. And when we make a gift, a giver, we've turned that gift into an idol. And there's a million, hundred million ways that that can happen in our lives. The, the Thessalonians are being commended by Paul and he's expressing gratitude for them in the fact that they've turned from the idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. Now here's the, here's the heart of the matter. That the son from heaven is Jesus whom he raised from the dead who delivers us from the wrath to come. Paul is thankful for the work of Jesus in their lives. And this really is the heart of the matter, right? Romans 5, Paul writes in Romans 5, 9, and 10, and he says this, Since therefore we have now been justified or made righteous by Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by Jesus from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Paul's expression in Romans is the same thing he's articulating here, that the Thessalonians were once alienated and and hostile and enemies of God and are now, through Jesus, brought into reconciliation and friendship with God. And that, if that's true for them, is true for you and me as we turn to Jesus for salvation, that we get transferred from the enemies to the friends of God. There's a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin who wrote on the verses in Romans, and he says this, um, we see that Jesus' death brings us to Christ, but then his life and intercession or living to intercede for us keeps God and us friends that we may never have a falling out. Paul's heart and love for the Thessalonians is rooted in the heart of Christ for us. That Christ, through his heart, through his love for us, lived and died and rose again and now intercedes in heaven for us so that we would never have a falling out with God. And Paul is essentially saying to the Thessalonians, I love you and I'm in this with you because Jesus loves you and is in this with you.
And he's pouring out his gratitude to them. He's pouring out his encouragement to them. He just wants them to be known that they are loved and, and to be built up in that. Paul isn't just going to stop here. In fact, all of chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and pretty much all of chapter 3 of this letter is this constant encouragement. More than half this letter, Paul is not correcting them. He's not trying to fix them. He's simply saying, I love you and I'm in this with you. Even though I'm not there in person, I am for you. And that's why the overarching theme of First Thessalonians in particular is encourage one another. So here's the question. Why are we so reserved in this in this expression of gratitude or encouragement to fellow Christians. And I'm not saying that we're always reserved in that, but I think we often are. And, and maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm projecting my problems onto you, and, and I'll, I'll admit that that might be the case. I find myself far more comfortable with um, correcting or you know, definitely internally critiquing and not encouraging. And I need to hear this because it's, it's a problem with my theology if I'm not actively engaging with others in encouragement as Paul models for us. If we are to imitate Christ as Paul imitates Christ, then by implication we are to see how Paul is following Christ in these, in these writings and then apply them to our lives. I think a lot of times we think that if we're too encouraging, and I don't think there's a biblical category for that, by the way, right? too encouraging, I don't think there is such a thing. Um, Paul says the only competitive language in any of Paul's writings is where he tells us to outdo one another in showing honor. It's the only time he tells us to be competitive, to show honor. Okay, so I don't think Paul would, would have any category for too much encouragement. But we do. I do. And I think part of that is because we think if we're too encouraging, we're going to puff people up and they're going to become proud. And we know pride is a sin, so we don't want them to be proud. Well, I think the the problem there is that we've, we've missed the distinction between encouragement and flattery. Paul's this is going to actually next week in our sermon, we're going to talk about flattery specifically. He brings it up. Because he's not flattering this church, he's encouraging it. Flattery is saying things to someone in order to um, basically get them to like you. And so you're just saying things, whether they're true or not, to, to you know, puff them up. The basis of flattery is on what someone has accomplished in themselves. The basis of encouragement is expressing to them what we see God doing in their lives. And you can never encourage too much. You can never tell someone too much what you're seeing Jesus do in them. And if we were to be more encouraging, we would actually probably grow more than we, we find ourselves growing. So, so as we start this letter, and again, we're gonna, we've got many chapters left of Paul modeling what encouragement looks like. But as we start this letter, just as we, we read this introduction, we need to recognize that the first way we express um, encouragement is through gratitude. Saying that we are grateful. 
Paul says at the very front of this that he mentions them in his prayers. But he doesn't just pray and say, okay, well, God knows that I'm grateful for the Thessalonians. That should be good enough. He actually tells them that he's praying for them. He doesn't just let, let it be like, well, God knows that I'm grateful. He knows my heart, so that's good enough. Well, apparently it's not good enough because he spends 10 verses telling them how he's thankful for them and, and giving God the praise for that. So, so I think this is a really important letter for us to go through because there's so much overlap in, in their lives and ours. They're discouraged and so are we. The Thessalonians lived in a culture that was hostile to Jesus. We are, we are living in a culture that's increasingly hostile to Jesus. They were longing for the return of Christ. We are too. Paul's going to address that a lot in these letters. They are experiencing a, a, a great tangible degree of loneliness because Paul and Silas and Timothy have left. They miss their friends. And we um, are living in an unprecedented time of loneliness. You could say there's a genuine pandemic of loneliness in our culture. And it's ironically uh, growing. The more digitally connected we are to the world, the less connected we are to each other. And Paul's going to directly address the issues of isolation and loneliness in this letter. So there's so much overlap here, and I think we need, to, we need to see it and hear it. So what do we do with our discouragement right out of the gate? Let me, let me give you a couple things. First, we need to do what Paul tells us to do, and that's turn to Jesus. We turn to him. He's the one who lived for us and died in our place and rose again and is now interceding so that we could be saved from the wrath of God. We need to give our hearts to him and trust him and lean on him. He's the only one who will never leave us or forsake us. And we need to continue to lean into him in times of discouragement. But there's something else, and I think this is what we see even more tangibly in this letter as we continue through it, is that Life with Jesus is always better with others alongside you. I know a lot of us can think, well, you know, all I need is Jesus and I'm good with that. And of course, on a salvation level, that's true. All you need is Jesus. You don't need anything to add to your salvation. But there is a reality in which Jesus has made us to be together. He has formed us and created us to be a part of a community of believers called the church. That's why Paul writes to churches, right? He, he, that's almost every letter he writes is to a church or to the leader of a church. He's not just writing to some isolated Christian out there living in a, in a cave by himself because the, the church is made, is created so that we could have community and be met in that. And so for a lot of us, our discouragement is happening because we're pulling back from the people that God has put in front of us to love us and care for us and encourage us. And a lot of us are not stepping up to the role of encouraging others. 
and we're letting them just float along on their own without pulling them back to safety. And so we need each other. We need Jesus and we need each other. That's really fundamentally what we're going to see in these, in these two letters. So I want to encourage you just as we start this out, we, we need each other. And that means we need to actually take some initiative to be together. And, and so we've offered a lot of things this fall and continuing on. We'll, we'll have lots of doors for you to walk in to try to find community. But you don't need me or the church to do that for you. You can do that on your own. You just find a friend and say, come on, let's meet together and let's encourage each other once a week. That's not that hard to do. I know it's, it feels intimidating, but it's not hard to do. And, and if you don't have, if you're not in a place where you know the people who can do that, then we have all these groups that are meeting and we have all these opportunities for you to come and be a part of it. And we want to see, see you plug in meaningfully to others because that's how Jesus has designed it to work. Paul is writing to this church to encourage them and ultimately encourage us as well as we read these letters to, to grow in Christ. So get together with others. Be plugged in to life with other Christians. That's how, that's how you'll find your encouragement. That's how you'll stop being discouraged. It's God's 2,000 plus year method for, for getting us out of our own heads and into Christ. But we've got to step into it and do it. So with all that said, let me just, let me just say, we, we want to love you and we want to serve you and the people in this room are here together and I don't think there's anyone here who would be like, you know what, I don't want to talk to you. <laughs> so, so take the initiative. Start, start working towards friendships. And a great way to start is to go eat a bunch of burgers with us after church today. Okay, so that's, that's your invite. And it's okay if you can't be there. There's other things that we'll, we'll be doing. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty, okay? But we'd love for you to be there with us. We'd love for you to plug into youth group or kids club or the, or the men's and women's studies that we have starting up in the next week or so. So with all that said, let me pray and then we'll, we'll transition into a time of singing and communion. Father, thank you for giving us the reminder today that you have chosen us, that you have loved us, that you have reconciled us to yourself that all these things are a work of grace and not a work of our, of our own making, Lord. Would you help us to lean into that? And would you help us now to step into the opportunities you give us to speak and encourage one another in this place, in this room, with the people that you've put next to us? Would you give us the opportunity to serve each other in that? We pray you'd help us in these things in Jesus' name. Amen.